Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. My apologies to you that there's not a sermon text in the bulletin. That is my fault. I was enjoying my vacation too much, so I apologize to you for that. But uh, we're going to go to Luke chapter 18. We're going to start a series on Easter, prepping for that. And today we're going to look at the mission to the cross. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34, after we read, then we will uh, pray, and then we'll dive into God's Word. Luke writes, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles, they will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, holy and complete. There is not a single dot that is missing It is all there for your church, and we ask that you would use this word to strengthen our souls, strengthen our trust in you, and grow us more into your children, or for some, help us use this word to become your children. And we ask that in Christ's name, amen. Now, there's not many people who remember what happened on October 1st, 1932, except maybe Marty Beale. He'll know why here in a minute. Because there was two cities that were in a struggle to become the champion of America's national pastime. And it was the third game of the series. Tempers and testosterone were flooding the air. And the Chicago Cubs were cheering their chief nemesis. And their chief nemesis he was. You see, he went by many names back then. And they were the Bambino, the Sultan of Swat, or just simply Ruth. It was the fifth inning of game number three in the 1932 World Series at Wrigley Field in Chicago. And the Yankees had won the first two games uh, at Yankee Stadium, but now it moved to Wrigley Field, the Cubs' home turf. And the Cubs were hoping to turn the series around. But in order to do that, they had to stop a man named Ruth. And the story goes that Ruth came to bat... And the Chicago bench was riding him and riding him hard. Taunts, curses, and the like were all coming from the Cubs bench towards Ruth. And during the bat, Ruth made a pointing gesture, which even exists in films to this day of this famous at bat. Now, we do not know exactly what he was pointing at, and it's not fully confirmed, nor is it fully refuted, But the story goes that Ruth pointed to center field at that time. He pointed to the center field bleachers at bat to let him, let them know, let the Cubs know where the ball would soon be going. And it wasn't soon after that that on the next pitch, Ruth blasted a 440 foot home run near the flagpole in center field. To this day, Ruth's prediction goes down in history of baseball lore. I'm sure Marty knows that quite well because he's told me one of his favorite websites is uh, www.mlb.com, which stands for Major League Baseball. 
And even though I didn't live in that era, many of us have heard of that famous story of Babe Ruth, how he pointed in prediction. Now, we cannot completely confirm that. Ruth never really answered the question what he was doing at the time. But it goes down into the lore that Ruth predicted this home run. And so he gets the credit and the trust that he did. Well, today we look at a similar prediction, yet it goes into much more detail, range, and result. Jesus, in our scriptures, gives us not only one prediction, but actually three predictions of his coming passion. And each prediction is recorded in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And today we're going to look at the third of those three predictions of his coming death and rising from the cross, or rising from the grave here in the gospel of Luke. This scene, what we should realize, what it's like, what what Jesus is going is sort of like that time when a commander pulls his troops aside before they take the ascent on a fortified hill. Or like a coach who calls a timeout before the final two minutes of play. Jesus was pulling his disciples aside and was preparing them. He was about ready to tell them what was about ready to happen. You see, Jesus wanted to make his disciples ready for their future ministry. After two and a half years, they had uh, went around the Judean countryside in Judea and Galilee. He had been preparing these 12 men for ministry. And like any general, he knew that there would be a crux battle. And that battle was about to come. It was his battle as he approached Jerusalem. And so like any commander that anticipated the conflict, the final tests, Jesus was giving his intelligence report to his troops. He was giving conclusive, laser precision accuracy of what they were about ready to see happen with their leader. And as God, Jesus knew all things. He knew what was to come and what would be. He wanted to prepare his men. Not exactly then, as we will see, but later on. He was building, molding, and correcting them into his future apostles. But now the challenge was upon them. The final time of that battle had come. They were now ready to go up to Jerusalem. And please notice, Jesus doesn't use a single hyperbole. He doesn't use a simile. He doesn't use a parable in this passage. It is straight talk, clear words. There is no mistaking what Jesus is telling them here. But one must have wondered what was going through the disciples' mind when they heard this. You see, they were well acquainted with the many attacks Jesus faced from the leaders at that time. They knew the attacks on his character. They knew that people plotted against them. They also were warned by Christ of the many harsh words or the, 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 the leaven of the Pharisees to watch out for these folks. At the same time, they'd seen they were the first-hand people, the the eyewitnesses of Jesus' miracles. They had seen him done thing after thing after thing to show his ability to be God in the flesh, that he was the Messiah, and their faith was in him. But their hearts were restless. You see, at this time, Scripture tells us that many longed for what was called the consolation of Israel. They believed at one time that Israel would return to its glories, that Jesus would be that king, that political figure that would come in and override the Roman rule and restore Israel to its national greatness. When they had David 
as their king, when they had Solomon as the king, and all the nations submitted to their leadership. That's what, what was going on. But Jesus had a different plan. You see, Jesus was drawing them to himself, who he was through his love, the truth of his gospel, and his personality as the Godhead. He begins by telling the twelve this, and don't miss this. He says in here that everything that is written in the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Not some, not part, but everything. This was not a guess or a fool playing with tarot cards. No, this was the God King. And he was speaking with clear authenticity and authority. That what was about ready to transpire, what these 12 men were about ready to experience, was going to be the work of God, the plan of God. And what God began in the Garden of Eve, when Eden, when he promised uh, uh, Adam and Eve that one day that they would have a child, and that child would bring the death blow to the snake, that work was coming to its final mark. We read earlier today, at the, as I did the call of worship in Isaiah chapter 53, some 600 years prior to Jesus' ministry, that Jesus would do this. Remember what it said? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. You see, as you and I read through Scripture, it's not just a series of moral stories on how we're supposed to be good people. It does tell us those things. But when we read the Bible, it's a whole conclusive story about how God saves a very broken world. A world that rebelled by giving his richest gift, his own very son, so that we might become his children. That's what the story began to tell. And Jesus says, what's about ready to happen, everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament, talks about this work during the Passion Week. He says this, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant which you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he will be like refiner's fire and launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. You see that all the prophecies have been spoken. There were no more prophecies outside of this one. This was the final prophecy. And Jesus now tells the twelve it is about to come to pass. And as any good commander... He wants the folks not to miss anything. That's one thing I've learned in the military, is good commanders don't want their troops to miss anything. Notice what Jesus says next. Everything about the Son of Man is about ready to be fulfilled. You see, he didn't want to have any uh, questions or curiosities when they looked back. He wanted them to realize who he was talking about. And the Son of Man is a label Jesus uses to describe himself. He uses it 25 times in the gospel. And that label, Son of Man, uh, goes back to Daniel chapter 7. 
That's where we see it most clearly. Daniel 7, verses 13 14 says this. Daniel speaks of his vision. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a son, was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Catch this. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never, ever be destroyed. Jesus was tying himself to this coming kingdom. He was saying, I am the Son of Man that Daniel wrote about. And I don't want you to miss this. I will do exactly what this passage says I will do. I will bring all people to myself so that they might worship me. That is the factual truth. But then he says something quite startling, doesn't he? He says he will be handed over to the Gentiles. In Mark's account... It goes even to more detail. Mark says he will be handed over first to the chief priests and scribes and then to the Gentiles. You see what's going on here? We can clearly see it 2,000 years afterwards. But Jesus is illuminating them to what's about ready to happen. Now, how these words must have affected them. Now, they knew that the Pharisees weren't all together. But at the same time, in many ways, the leaders of the nation of Israel should have been the most trusted court. I mean, think about it. Of all the courts in the world, these were the people that were most acquainted with God's word. People and men of God who were well studied in scriptures. And Mark tells us, to give us a little bit more illumination on this passage, that the Son of Man, the one who is going to be worshipped by everybody, is going to be handed over to them is going to be turned over to them. And what we come later to know is that it was the greatest tragedy of justice that ever occurred. How can the perfect Son of God, who had never erred, never sinned, never done anything wrong, get condemned by what should have been the most holiest, righteous court of the land? But that's exactly what happened. And so the disciples must have wondered, what was the connection between the Son of Man and the handing over to their leaders at the time? And then to add to that, Jesus says, he'll be given over to the Gentiles. This must have added to their perplexity. Because why would the Son of Man, the very person who who God has promised all these years, be handed over to the unclean, to the pagans? to the ones outside God's covenant community. And then Jesus adds further to this by saying they would mock him, they would insult him, spit on him, flog him, kill him, but on the third day he would rise again. This certainly must have puzzled the disciples. We know from Scripture, and we'll talk about this later, it did puzzle them. But if we were to look at this right now, It's kind of interesting when you get into critical work, critical scholar work. You see, a lot of people ask questions about this passage. And let me share with you what their question is. Their question is this. Was this really a prediction? What they argue is they say, what really happened in our text today is people went back in time 
went back to the gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and changed things or added this to say, you know what, this is to show so people will put their faith in God. You get what I'm saying? They sort of uh, uh, stack the deck. They changed the cards around so that you and I would be gullible and we would believe in that. But the question is, uh, instead of, was this really a prediction, I think the question we need to ask is, why wasn't it a prediction? If this is true, if what they are saying is true, that this was merely a scribal error, that how could Jesus predict his death in such precision and such accuracy, then we'd have to bring questions to a lot of other places in Scripture, wouldn't we? Especially in the Gospel. I mean, think about the miraculous catch that Jesus first told uh, Peter and Andrew to to dump their nets on the other side of the boat. How did Jesus know the Son of God that know that there would be that many fish on that side of the boat? And they would be so hungry and so willing to jump into those nets. And if we were to ask questions about this passage, we'd also have to ask questions about when Jesus met that Samaritan woman and said, you know what? You haven't been married one time. You've been married actually seven times, and your current husband really isn't your husband. How could he know those things? Or Jerusalem's fall that he clearly predicted would happen, that one day every stone would be overturned. And sure enough, in A.D. 70, it happened. Jerusalem was completely overturned. Or lastly, when Nathaniel runs into Christ, and Christ says, before uh, I saw you, you were sitting under a tree. And what does Nathaniel say? Truly, you are the Holy One of God. You see, in each one of these accounts, all throughout Scripture, we see the clear testimony that Jesus was God. Jesus is God, that He knows everything. And there is not anything that escapes from His glance. He knows what is going to happen today and tomorrow in each one of our lives with pinpoint accuracy. He knows us so well, Scripture tells us, that He knows every single hair on our head. And I believe this text is to again confirm to our hearts and our minds that so much struggle sometimes to get around that that Jesus is God, that He is completely, 100% God in the flesh. You see, He wants us to know who He is. And please hear me. Why does He want us to know who He is? Well, He's a God of love. I don't know about you, but I've certainly doubted that Jesus is God. And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes I, I, I know something is true by reading Scripture, and I doubt it. I, I dare say I'm not alone in this congregation on that thing. We doubt sometimes the things that He says to us. Or the direction we know in our heart that He's telling us to do, but He wants us to trust in Him to do that. But we struggle with this doubt. You see, our God is a God of love, Scripture tells us. He is patient and He's kind. He does not envy, nor does He boast. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. In the end, Jesus never fails. And that is who He is. He is the one who loves. And even when He knew that He was about ready to face the wrath of His Father... For all of our wickedness, not anything he had done, he was so concerned to make sure his 12 and us later, his church, would know that he knew exactly what he was going to face. 
He knew these things. And he was going to win his church. He was going to win his bride. He was going to accomplish his goal. He said, set out what he was going to do, and he did it. Now what's interesting that I mentioned before is this was not the first time Jesus had predicted his death. Early in the book, uh, after Peter answers Jesus' question, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and must be killed on the third day and raised to life. Nine days later after that, Luke tells us, after the healing of the young boy, Jesus said to his disciples, listen carefully for what I'm about ready to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed by the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. You see, the predictions Jesus gave were very plain and straightforward, yet the disciples didn't understand the words. They were confused by them. But notice it wasn't just that they couldn't get their heads around about it. Scripture tells us it was hidden from them. Someone was hiding the truth from them. And that person who was hiding the truth from them was God. Our text ourselves says this in verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. John Calvin's favorite verse is Deuteronomy 29.29, and it says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of the Lord. You see, dear friends, if you're like me, and chances you are, We love to know things as human beings. We read the Inquirer. We look at Star Magazine. We watch CNN or Fox News. Whatever it might be, we want to know what's going on. We want to know it. But rarely do we say, I am satisfied that I do not know. Rarely do we say that. It's rather, we want to know. But this point tells us, Scripture tells us, it was not time yet for the disciples to know. And that's okay. You see, these words of prophecy Jesus gave ahead of time so that when after all the events happen, the disciples by the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit will be reminded of them. They would remember that truth. And because they would remember that, that would increase their faith. You know, dear friends, this same passage should do the same for us here 2,000 years later. You see, this passage oozes with food for faith. It tells you and I that this Son of God who said He was going to do what He was going to do, did do what He was going to do, and He accomplished it. Nothing was going to stop Him. He was going to ride victorious out of Calvary. He was going to take His bride, His church, with Him. And He did that. It is sure as sure can be. Heaven and earth may pass away, Jesus says, but my word will not pass away. It is eternal truth, and he will accomplish his goal. It is an amazing gift to us, but we are so fickle, are we not? You know, if if you and I had a friend, and that person was well acquainted with business investments, and he came up to us maybe after this worship service, and he said, hey, I... I was thinking of you the other day. I just want to tell you, this company, you know, you may have heard of them in the stock market. They're about ready to be bought out, by, and it's going to be by 25% more of what they're going to be bought out. 
What would we do? Hey, what's the name of that company, right? We would want that knowledge. We would want that truth because it would benefit us. How much more should we want the knowledge of Christ and that who he is and the truth that he will accomplish? We should hold on to him. We should treasure him. Peter tells us if we grow in these promises, if we grow in our trust of God, we increase or we increase in their quality and they will keep us from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is knowing Jesus Christ that helps us to move through the challenges of our life, that he is so sure. All of us face challenges. And I don't know what you're you're dealing with right now. It could be a myriad of things. It could be you have a family member that's going through a divorce or your own marriage is going through challenges. Or it could be that you're struggling to find a new job or you don't have a job at all with this current economic situation. Maybe you, you realize you're not as competitive as you once were when you were younger. And now you're older and you're wondering where the Monday might come. Or perhaps it's the fear, if you fear this, when my wife is away from me, I fear that she might get hit in a car accident and that she'll leave me and I'll be gone, she'll be gone from me. That's a fear I struggle with. Or perhaps you're facing a fear of disease that you cannot beat or depression you feel like you cannot conquer. You wonder how you can face your suffering, your challenges alone. But in all these scenarios, we come to realize, and I think what God is trying to teach us is that we do not have what it takes to overcome them. We are so self-reliant as human beings to accomplish these things on our own. But the person who accomplishes, the one who never fails, never succumbed, was going to find victory, whatever it took, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what this passage teaches us. He is going to accomplish the things he came to accomplish. And the very things he is going to accomplish in your life, he is going to accomplish. You see, the lies of this world tell us the opposite of that. You see, Scripture tells us that Jesus came to overcome three things in this world. And one was the world. Remember what he said in John chapter 16? I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, church, but take heart. I have overcome this world. One of the things my dad drilled into my head, and he'll probably smile when I say this, is he would say to me, son, this, old, this, old, this world is a mean old place. And he's right. This world is a mean old place. It's nasty, it's full of hard knocks, the good guys don't always win, and it's tough. But with Jesus, when we hang on to Him, the confidence we have is that He has overcome the world. And when we hang on to Him, He gives us that strength to move through the world, whatever difficulty we might face. The other person He overcame was the devil. John writes in 1 John, But this you know, the Spirit... Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God, and have overcome them, for he who is, a, who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You know, friends, you may have the devil on your back right now, and he might be chomping on your earlobe. But the fact of the matter is, in Christ, 
you can overcome those things. God will provide a way of escape when you are tempted. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but he will provide a way out. And lastly, Jesus overcomes the devastating effects of sin on the human race. You and I both know what he came to the cross to do. It wasn't merely uh, uh, just to, to have a great display of love and affection. It was that. But he came to take the Father's wrath. He came to take what you and I deserve so that we might be forgiven and we might be born again. That is the eternal truth that we have in Christ Jesus. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, as you look back at this passage and as you come to your 5th or 20th or 40th or 50th Easter, may you reflect afresh again that our Jesus Christ, who he is, is the only one the only one we can set our sure hopes in. We cannot set our hopes in a political leader. They will pass and they will fail us time and time again, but Jesus Christ will not fail us. He is the one true God, and He is the one who said what He would do, and He did it, and now we are receiving those blessings. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this text, and as You prepare our hearts for Easter, help us to reflect again on what You did there in Jerusalem. We thank you, Jesus, for the work you did on the cross. And Lord, I would pray, uh, Lord, each of us go through so many difficulties and challenges. We all struggle. We all fall short. But those weaknesses show that we are not to trust in ourselves or any other vain idols. But you, God, are the only true cistern that holds true water. Everything else is broken. It will fail us and fall short, and it will always want more. Lord, help us to trust completely and solely in you. We love you, Lord Jesus, and thank you for redeeming us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.